Hi, this is Eric Sinrod from Dwayne Morris in San Francisco, uh, bringing you your weekly Tech Law 10. Uh, my partner, Jonathan Armstrong, currently is in Asia. And Jonathan, I understand you're looking for this missing Malaysian 777 jumbo jet. Well, uh, uh, Eric, I'd certainly help if I thought I could. But it's certainly, uh, as you would anticipate, top news uh, out here with many Asian countries uh, as well as the uh, Australian uh, military on the hunt for this jet. And I think um, we've turned from uh, uh, grief through anger, I think, uh, certainly from what I've seen out here in Asia, and lots of unanswered questions. And I think everybody we've met really has got different theories and different concerns. But the one that's perhaps of the most relevance to tech law is this um, rehashing, if you like, of the worries that people have had about in-flight communications and the at least theoretical risk that uh, airline systems can be hacked. And I suppose how the logic, if that's not an overstatement of this argument goes, is that um, firstly, many planes now, if not all model planes, are fly-by-wire in that gone are the days when we had, you know, ailerons and pieces of, um, pieces of metal that taped them together, but now the computer manages the, uh, the plane and the, and the flight, with obviously with still some skilled human uh, intervention. And the issue seems to be that apparently, uh, almost uh, through cost savings, the allegation, at least, is that some airlines have used the same computer system for navigating the plane and communicating with the ground to install a, uh, a less costly means for passengers to communicate with the ground. And uh, so get emails in flight, for example, which uh, obviously I think you and I both think is a bad reason for a whole host of uh, other reasons, but the concern here is that if there isn't an adequate firewall between the passenger side of the network and the pilot side, then there's at least a possibility that a passenger could sit in seat 3A and interfere with the information that the pilot's got, or worse still, interfere with the plane itself. And I guess in any situation like this, probably even going back to the days of the Marie Celeste, if not earlier, then all sorts of people will have all sorts of conspiracy theories. And I think we're starting to see many of those air, obviously the majority of which are unlikely to be true. The other thing I suspect that uh, we, uh, we're going to hear a lot about is the fact that airlines are under financial pressure. I once did a short Harvard uh, Business School course, and one of the case studies we were given was the airline industry. And apparently back through history, it is almost impossible for an airline actually to make money. And that's why historically, I guess back into the 70s and 80s, we had state-supported airlines, but then many states thought that was a bad idea. and uh, past these state-supported airlines into the private sector, 
but we've almost seen a re-emergence of flag carriers, particularly in places like the Middle East, which has put pressure again on some of these airlines that are liberalized or quasi-independent uh, of government and don't have the deep pockets that their Middle Eastern rivals have. And I guess like any airline, the pressure is to make incremental revenue. Now, with some low-cost airlines, we know that's things like charging you for hand luggage and for an allocated seat. And in other cases, it will be the data dollar that they're after. And I wonder, I think my first thought is, I wonder if the data dollar will be slowed down or less attractive to some airlines because of the intense speculation that surrounds MH370. And I guess the other fundamental question for, um, for those of us who look at technology issues is what went wrong here in terms of the transponder? And if it was pilot error or if it was a deliberate act by somebody on the flight crew, is that a preventable accident and might that possibly lead to litigation? And you and I, Eric, have talked about the ever-present tracking through our cell phones and the fact that people can analyze things like shopping behaviors and where we went uh, to drink coffee and so on just through tracking our iPhone or other device. And in that world, it seems slightly incredible, doesn't it, that a large plane like this can just disappear from the grid? And has there been a failure of those systems outside uh, uh, talking about hacking or anything like that? Has there just been a systems failure in terms of the uh, system permitting one or two individuals to disable all tracking so that the plane can't be traced. And I wonder if these concerns and this discussion that's going on here in Asia is being mirrored in the U.S. as well. Oh, I, frankly, you know, Jonathan, the very last point you made for me would be the first point. Where is this plane? How can we be in a world right now with so much technology and the ability to monitor every tiny little movement that you know, this huge jumbo jet with all sorts of electronic capabilities and people on board with their own devices, how is it missing? And nobody knows where it is, if that's truly the case. It, it, it boggles the imagination. We now live in a world where, you know, frankly, you know, where we're walking on the planet as an individual can be determined by technology at any moment. And yet this jumbo jet, nobody knows where it is. Um, it, it raises so many questions. Uh, for which we don't currently have answers. You know, I've read reports that perhaps if the plane were flying at extremely low altitude, uh, around 5,000 feet, but between mountains, uh, possibly that could escape detection. Um, but you know, this needs to be uh, addressed further. You know, clearly there's a major effort to find out. Uh, you know, I think gone. I would like to think that gone are the days of you know, a solo flight like Amelia Earhart, and then she's missing and can't be found, that that's not the world we're living in right now, especially with the nature of jumbo jet hundreds of passengers. Do you agree, Jonathan? I, I, I think that must be right, mustn't it? I mean, I, su I suppose attention's going to turn 
to things like uh, jammers, so sig signal jammers. It's mm. possible to get uh, high potency uh, signal jammers, particularly in the part of the world I am now where the telecoms uh, license restrictions aren't so great. I suppose I could probably you know, walk into the uh, walk into the street outside the hotel now and, and pick up a relatively high powered signal jam for about $250. Is that too cheap for technology like that? And are we going to have to look in these days when, um, if that is the case, lone actors or uh, one or two individuals who are perhaps not mentally balanced can create such harm? Are we going to have to look root and branch at uh, technology fail-safe systems and making sure that uh, equipment like jammers aren't available? But um, I suppose it's one of those, and usually, Eric, for our topics, where there are far more questions than answers. Mm, absolutely right. All right. Well, we've certainly taken our share of the, the 10 part of Tech Law 10, so we will now sign off and bid you adieu until the next time. My name is Eric Sinrod. I'm in San Francisco. My email address is ejsinrod at dwaynemorris.com. As you know, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the usual social media outlets. And Jonathan, even though you're far away in Asia, you can bring it home. Yes, thanks very much. And I'm uh, uh, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, jparmstrong at uh, dwaynemorris.com. Uh, as Eric said, you can find us in all the usual social media outlets. We're always very happy to hear from you. And uh, until next week, we will bid you adieu. Thanks Cheers. for listening.